So typically, the sermon for a Christmas service will be about Jesus' birth. Uh, But today, we are actually going to fast forward to the end of Jesus' life. And we are going to do this because this was the reason he was born. Today, we are going to look at the purpose of Jesus' birth. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'd probably assume that we'd go to one of the four Gospels. And the four Gospels are just four different books written by four different authors that describe the life of Jesus. And uh, we are going to mention these a lot today, but that's not going to be our primary text. Our primary text is going to be Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 uh, mysteriously and beautifully depicts the purpose of Jesus' birth, which is for him to suffer, to die, and to rise in glory for the sake of his people. Now, the Psalms are just a collection of songs written by a bunch of various different authors. Uh, Israel, when these were written, would have been very familiar with them and sung them often. And the author of this Psalm today, Psalm 22, is David, and it was written about a thousand years before Jesus was born. So you might be thinking, well, if David is the author and has written a thousand years before Jesus was born, how could this be about Jesus? And that's a good question. First, it's important to note that what we are reading today was true of David. Psalm 22 reflects what David was really feeling, what he was hurting, how he was rejoicing. It was true of his experience. But second, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David mysteriously described the experience of Jesus even more clearly than he described the experience of himself. This not only helps us understand our text today, but it should cause us to believe that God is real, he is most clearly seen in Christ, and he is worthy of trusting. Therefore, we're not going to mainly focus on David's circumstances that he describes, but on the greater truth that is found in Christ. So if you would, open up with me to Psalm 22. If you're using the blue provided Bibles below you, that's on page 457. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider that one yours. The title of this sermon is The King Who Suffered. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. 
Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or bored the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text this morning, would you allow me to speak clearly, and would you open our hearts to the beauty of your word? Be with us now. Amen. If you want a summary statement for what the sermon is today, you can see that in your bulletin. And that is that Jesus suffered so that we would praise and worship the Lord. Therefore, let us run to him with joy. Jesus suffered so that we would praise and worship the Lord. Therefore, let us run to him with joy. You can also see in the, in the same section there in your sermon notes that the text is broken down into two subpoints, two sections with a couple subpoints. Section one is Jesus' suffering, and that's verses 1 to 21. Within that, we see three things. He suffered spiritually in 1 through 5. He suffered emotionally in 6 through 11. And he suffered physically in 12 through 21. And then our section two is our praise and worship, which is found in verses 22 to 31. We see that we have our praise in 22 to 26 and our worship in 27 to 31. So we'll go through this starting with section one. And since we are fast forwarding to why Jesus came, which we will see is his death and resurrection, there is some groundwork that needs to be laid, a little bit of context if you're not super familiar with what's going on. God created uh, people to be in a relationship with him. He's a relational God. And in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, his first people, they walked with him. Yet due to their own imperfections and the temptation of sin, they chose to disobey God and that severed their relationship with him. Now God is fully holy. This means that in order to be with God, you must share in his righteousness. Therefore, the relationship between God and man was severed. So all people since Adam and Eve has shared in their sinfulness. We have inherited a sinful heart that is not in right standing with God. Yet because God is fully just, there has to be a punishment for sin. God's character requires him to be perfect. This means that wrongdoing cannot go unpunished. God knew that each person would have to pay the price of their own sin, me and you. The price being eternal separation from him. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. Jesus was fully righteous, unlike we were. He did not merit any punishment on himself. And because of his great love for us, he took the punishment of our sin, the punishment that we deserved on himself, so that anyone who accepts it will be saved. When our holy and just God judges to make all things right, when he looks at us, if we have chosen to accept Jesus' sacrifice in our place, there is no balance to be paid. Everything is made right. But if we do not accept Jesus' sacrifice, the, eternal, the punishment, the balance will be eternal separation from God, and we will have to pay that. 
So let's look together at the great lengths Jesus went to save us, starting with verses 1 through 5 on how Jesus suffered spiritually. Verses 1 and 2 say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. We're going to see that there are striking parallels before this, of this text and of the Gospels. In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus said the very same thing. It says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we are going to see shortly how incredibly painful Roman crucifixion was. And we are going to see that Jesus was greatly ridiculed. Yet neither of those things come close to the suffering he's experienced from being separated from his father. Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? Just feel his pain. Why are you so far from saving me? I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. From eternity past, before the foundations of the world, forever, Jesus was in perfect relationship with the Father. God is three in one, the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now at the cross, Jesus is paling the penalty for our sin, and for the first time and the only time in all existence, he is separated from his Father. Friends, Jesus bore separation from God so that we would not have to. If we are in Christ, we can have confidence that God is near to us in all circumstances. In the deepest of valleys and the hardest of seasons, we can know that God is right next to us. And as we already read, we know this just from when Jesus was born. What did God tell Mary to name him? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. He came to this world to be with us. And he was temporarily separated from God so that we could be with God forever. Although this is absolutely true for Christians, sometimes it does not feel this way. When we are in deep valleys and hard seasons, sometimes God feels far away. But we can with reverence and honesty, like Jesus and David here, cry out to God. Why am I going through this, God? Why do you feel so far from me? When will this end? God does not want us to be dishonest in our feelings. Think about how silly that would be. He knows all things. He wants us to communicate honestly with him. And there's also another side of this, which we will see in these next three verses. Verses three to five say that when we are honest about our hurting, we can speak truth to God, who God is. It says, yet you who are holy enthroned on the praise of Israel and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. When we feel like God has forsaken us, when we feel like we are being far from delivered in our hard season, we can with confidence look back to who God is and what he has done and speak that truth into our lives. Just think about what this says. God is holy. God has always been faithful. All those who trust in him have been delivered. No one who trusts in him will be put to shame. We can look at Scripture and see that God is full of being faithful to His people. And we can look at our own lives and see how God has drawn a wretched sinner to Himself. And this is just a good practice for prayer, to look at God's Word, to look at His faithfulness, and take Him for His Word. Say, God, would you do what you've said you would do? Now, Jesus was separated from God so that we wouldn't have to be. All those who submit to Jesus as Lord can have confidence that God is always with them. 
We should be honest about our hurting, we can cry out to God, and we should remember God's faithfulness in the life of people in our own lives. Now let's look at the suffering he experienced emotionally in verses 6 through 11. 6 through 8 say, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Here we see another striking parallel to Jesus' experience on the cross in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 39 to 43 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from that cross, and he will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him if he desires. For he has said, I am the Son of God. Look how strikingly similar those two things are. Written hundreds of years apart. Experienced thousands of years apart. Now, what we just saw is treason on the highest degree. The one who created all things, the one who is perfectly good, he's never done anything wrong, is being mocked by the very people he came to save. Yet Jesus, unlike what we probably would have done, he did not snap back at them. He said nothing. He didn't use his infinite power, the power that created the whole world to destroy these people yelling at him. But instead, he looked at them with kindness and compassion, and he said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they have done. There are two things I want to take away from this. First, if we follow Jesus, we will likely be treated as he was treated. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus was mocked and humiliated. He suffered emotionally. So if you are a Christian, it is likely that you either have or will be mocked for your faith. It is likely that you will experience emotional suffering for what you believe. Yet we can have great comfort, and this is the second takeaway. Jesus experienced all the trials and pain that we went through, which makes him able to sympathize with us in every way. And Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says that very thing. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus was tempted and suffered just as we do, yet he did not sin. And what's the imperative of this truth? What does it say because of that? It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Jesus is sufficient to help us in our time of need. He supplies all the mercy and grace necessary to make it through this life. So when we experience emotionally suffering due to our faith in Jesus, we can run to Jesus who is our perfect help in our time of need. Now David and Jesus model this for us very well by going to the Father in their time of need. Verses 9 through 11 say, Yet ye, he who took me from my womb, you made me at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. They recognize that God has always been with them from the time they left their mother's womb. And they ask God that he would continue to be near them in their time of trouble. Now, there's an example for us, and it would be something like, God, you say that you are close to the brokenhearted. Lord, I am broken right now. 
please be close to me. This helps us remember what is true about God and helps us orient our desires around his truth. So Jesus suffered emotionally so that the very sinners who mock him, me and you, the ones there that day, could find salvation in his name. Jesus suffered emotionally and is able to sympathize us in our suffering. Because of this, we can draw near to him with confidence, praying out the truth of his word and asking that he'll be faithful to keep it. Let's now look at how he suffered physically in verses 12 through 21. Verses 12 through 18 say, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here we see that it felt like strong bulls and ravening lions were surrounding Jesus. This just symbolizes the great physical distress that Jesus was in. It felt like a pack of powerful animals were trampling and tearing him apart. Now I am going to describe the crucifixion and see how alike it is to these verses. But again, I just want us to think about how crazy this is. This is written 500 years before crucifixion even existed. A thousand years before Jesus came, but 500 years before the punishment of crucifixion even existed. And he describes it so well. Now David is using his own imagery to describe his own suffering, but miraculously and mysteriously, God used that to write a book that points to Jesus Christ. That's mysteriously and wonderful. I don't know anything else in this universe that has done that. Now, this is how Jesus' crucifixion happened. This is the great physical suffering he went through for us. First, Jesus was arrested. A band of soldiers and some guys came to him, and they took him away. Then he was put on trial, and the governor there, Pilate, found no guilt in him, yet the people demanded that he would be killed. Then he was stripped of his clothes, bare naked and flogged, And flogging was this gruesome and horrible form of torture. They would take a whip, put nails and glass in it, chain someone, lay him over their back, and they would take the whip, hit him over their back, pull it out, and with everything, flesh and blood and everything else coming with, and they would do that over and over again until the body was almost bare. Now, once this was through, they pushed a crown of thorns into his skull to mock him for claiming to be a king. Then a wooden cross was placed on his back, the barren back that was just ripped apart, and he was demanded to carry it up a mountain. And once he was at the top of the mountain, the actual crucifixion took place. And just as verse 16 says, his hands and his feet were pierced. Crucifixion, this wooden cross, they would take nails and drive it through each one of your hands and through your feet. And you'd be laying there, and then they would drop the cross into a hole, and your body would go down, and your shoulders would dislocate. And this was actually the worst part, because this is what would kill you. And just as verse 14 said, all my bones are out of joint, his shoulders were out of joint. And in order to get a breath, you had to take on your hands and your legs and push up on the metal nails and breathe and go back down with no breath, and each time pushing on your barren skin that have nails through them. And eventually you'd be tired to carry on. You couldn't 
possibly go another breath so you would suffocate. Now the one who killed him fulfilled the verse of 18 by taking his clothes, says in Matthew 27, 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, exactly what Psalm 22 says. And just like that in verse 17, it says that not one of his bones will be broken and Jesus' legs were not broken. John 19, 32, 33, and 36 says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. For these things took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now Jesus was crucified beside two other men. There was two other men on each side of him. And they were alive when the Sabbath day come and these Jewish leaders didn't want people hanging on a cross suffering on a Sabbath day because it was supposed to be a holy day. So they said, go break their legs so that they don't have the strength to push up and they'll suffocate. And so the guards went and they broke his legs. But Jesus was already dead when they got to him. And this might make you think that Jesus was weaker than the other two and he couldn't keep himself alive, but it's actually quite the opposite. And this, this was the opposite from the very beginning when the soldiers arrested him, like I said, how this started, they came and they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And just at the words, I am he, they were blown off their feet and on their backs. Just by his words, he could throw people to the ground. Jesus was in fully control and he could have stopped them whenever he wanted. Yet he did it. He willingly went because he knew he had to die for us. He had to be the sacrifice for our sins. Similarly, no one took his life from him, but on the cross, he gave up his spirit. He chose when he was going to die, when the sacrifice was enough. Now that is why um, he was already dead when the soldiers came to break his legs. And in verses 19 and 21, we hear a cry for help and a deliverance given. They say, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus prayed to be delivered, and his prayer was answered. He was rescued. When Jesus died, they laid him in a tomb where he laid for three days. And on the third day, he was resurrected. He rose from the dead. He was rescued because we serve a God who is alive. He has triumphed over death. He took the keys of death and Hades, and he guarantees that if we are in him, we will rise as he did. Jesus suffered physically so that we could be saved from eternal suffering. David depicts Jesus' death a thousand years before it could happen and 500 years before the torture was invented. We have a massive reason to be confident that the Bible is true and it is filled with majesty. And Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave, triumphing over death, guaranteeing our future resurrection. Because of this, we praise and worship God, which you're now going to look at in verses 22 through 31. Now, earlier I said, Jesus came on a rescue mission for you. I talked about how Jesus took on the punishment of your sin while he was on the cross. But I want to be clear about who this is applied to. Jesus died for those who believe in him and sacrifice and accept his sacrifice by making them Lord of his life. Now, I want to ask you, want you to ask yourself, is Jesus truly Lord of my life? If he is, you will desire to know him by reading his word. You'll desire to talk to him through prayer. You'll desire to talk about him with other Christians. You can't stop talking about him, and you'll desire to tell of him to non-believers. Now, if these desires and actions are absent from your life, I want you to ask yourself, have I actually accepted Jesus' sacrifice for my life? Is Jesus actually the Lord of my heart? Am I really going to go to heaven? 
Now, please do not think that these actions, these desires, and these habits somehow earn your salvation. No, no, no. It's quite the opposite. And here's an example. Christianity is a job. We know that all jobs, there's qualifications to get the job, and then there's the job descriptions. Now, the qualification to be a Christian is to believe and accept it. That's it. You don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. But there is a job description. And the job description is what we just said, reading the Bible, doing what it says, praying, talking with other Christians about Jesus and telling non-believers about Jesus. Now, if you are not doing the job description, it's likely you haven't accepted the job. And so, please hear this. Being a good person is not good enough. The Bible says all have fallen short and sinned before the glory of God. The Bible says that it's been by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. No one is good enough to earn their salvation. Being a Christian is not about being good enough. Being a Christian is about seeing the love God has for you, recognizing how great a sacrifice Jesus' death was to save you. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to go to heaven? Just look at Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have done nothing to earn God's favor, yet he suffered because he loves us. Jesus endured being separated from his Father, his greatest suffering, because he didn't want to be separated from you. Jesus endured being mocked and emotionally abused so that he could be with you. Jesus endured great physical suffering. He endured having the flesh ripped out of his back. He endured endured having to lift up on nail-pierced hands and feet so that he could be with you. Please look at Jesus and see how much God loves you. Please look at Jesus and see the relationship that God wants to have with you. Look at Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins and trust in him and him alone for your salvation. And if you have any questions about this and you want to talk to someone, please talk to me, the pastor here, or the person who brought you. We want nothing more than for you to come into relationship with the living God. So now we're going to look at what it looks like to praise and worship this God. Verses 22 and 23 say, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Now the word for praise is centered around actions of admiration. Things like singing songs like we do here, or declaring God's goodness with your words. And this should be done in our daily lives. Absolutely, we should do this every day. But what better place to do it than when Christians come together? It says, in the midst of the congregations, I will praise you. We were made to live in community. We were made to be members of a local church. He designed us to follow him with other people. This looks like joining together every Sunday to publicly declare his praises, meeting throughout the week in community groups and discipleship relationships. We were not meant to do this alone. Now, when we join a local church, we get to be encouraged and challenged. We get to live life the way God made us to. If you're united to God, you should be united to his people. And it does not have to be here. If you come to think that citizens isn't the church for you, if I don't preach good enough, if Rob doesn't preach good enough, if the music is too different, that's fine. It doesn't have to be here. We would love to connect you to another faithful church where you can walk out your Christian faith. So moving on, we'll see in verses 24 to 26, they say, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. 
The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. We see that in verse 24 here, that although Jesus experienced God's wrath on our behalf, he was ultimately heard and he was rescued. And in verse 25, we see that in the great congregation, at the end of time when the saints are gathered before God, the risen Christ will declare his praise and all that he has vowed will be made true. And then in verse 26, we see that those who've been united to Christ will join his affliction. They will eat and be satisfied in their, for their hearts forever. A lot of times Christianity can get a bad rap for being less satisfying than the world. A lot of times people can look at Christianity and just see all the things you have to give up, all the things you have to do. Yet the creator of all things doesn't want us to be in a relationship with him so we'd be miserable. He created us and he calls us in relationship with himself so that he may be glorified and we would be most satisfied in that very glory. There is nothing more satisfying than following God. So what does it look like to praise God? Well, we declare his praises in all we do, especially by uniting to a local church, declaring his praises with others who look like him. And we, do not, and we get to look forward to the day that we will stand in the great congregation where we will be satisfied perfectly forever. Let's now look at our worship in verses 27 to 31. Verse 27 to 29 say, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So here we have transitioned from the word praise to the word worship. And the difference here is the word praise is about actions. It's about affections. It's, it's things we do. Worship is a lifestyle. The word for worship literally means to bow down, to bow the knee. So our worship is not just these actions like praise, although that's a part of it, but worship is a lifestyle of submission to God, a lifestyle of bowing the knee to a good and loving God. Interestingly, all the ends of the earth and the families of the nations are described as those who will worship God. God has always been a missionary God. God wants all the nations of the earth to follow him. He says that he rules over the nations. This means governmental leaders and systems cannot and will not stop his gospel from reaching the ends of this earth. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 28, 18 and 19. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. John Stott says, we need to become global Christians with a global vision, for we have a global God. We do not serve God on an island. The whole world is growing with those who will willingly serve and be satisfied in our Lord. Now, verse 29 mentions an important truth. It says, before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Now, this is just saying that everyone will die from the dust we came to the dust we will go. It's true of every person. Now, when it says, even the one who cannot keep himself alive, that's an interesting phrase, but it just means that those who do not accept Christ will not experience eternal life. They can't keep themselves alive, but instead they will experience eternal ruin. And we get this from Ezekiel 17, 27, which says, again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness, he is committed and does what is right he shall save his life. So what's the point? The point is that every person that ever has and ever will live will bow their knee to Christ in the end. Your knee will be bowed to Christ. However, only those who bow their knee in this lifetime will be saved. 
Only those who accept Jesus' sacrifice and have a relationship with him will enter eternal paradise. So please, if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, if you have not trusted in him for your sins, if he is not the Lord of your life, turn to him now. You'll be making the best decision you could ever make. Now, as we come to the last two verses, lean in. This is awesome. Don't, don't lose me as we finish here. Verses 31 and 31 say, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim to his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Right before Jesus gave his life on the cross, he says, It is finished. Through Jesus' righteous sacrifice, he accomplished salvation for us. The Holy Spirit knew that it would happen, and through David, he wrote that he has done it a thousand years before it happened. And what is also awesome is that I'm a current fulfillment of these verses. It says the Lord will be told in coming generations. That's what's happening right now. His righteousness will be proclaimed. We are proclaiming his righteousness to a people yet not born. We were not born 3,000 years ago, but we are proclaiming that he has done it. And it says that one day salvation will be achieved and it will be proclaimed. One commentary phrases this very well. It says, The telling of redemption's story will not end until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Messiah. We will tell others. Who will tell others? Who will tell others? When people today, a hundred years from now and a thousand years from now, hear that the one true God answered the prayer of his righteous one, delivered him out of death and resurrection power, they will tell the ends of the earth that he has done it. It is finished. Yes, they will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn and declare what he has done. Now listen, there's only one thing in human history that has been worth talking about for 3,000 years. And it's the loving kindness of our God to save us through his righteous son. That's it. Nothing else has been talked about. So we worship our God by bowing our knee to him by making him Lord of our lives. Jesus suffered so that we would praise and worship the Lord. Therefore, let us run to him in joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is miraculous. And a thousand years before Christ the King came, you described his death and his suffering for us. Thank you that we can trust in your word and find life in it. Thank you that you do not want us to be miserable in a relationship with you, but you love us and you satisfy us to the utmost degree. There is no life better than serving you and serving you fully. Thank you that you created us this way and you've brought us to yourself. We love you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.